0: The life and strange, surprising adventures of Robinson Crusoe of York, Mariner, who lived 8 and 20 years all alone in an uninhabited... Jonas,
1: Jonas, Jonas, Jonas.
0: Why the whole thing? Get to the point. Somebody should have told the author that. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello and welcome to... Another episode of Outside of a Dog. My name is Jonas Hock of Tettnang. My family is not actually from there. They emigrated from further north in Germany. And and
1: my name is Christian Schneider. And unfortunately, I'm not a castaway on an island where no one else can talk. Wouldn't,
0: Wouldn't you wish that we were castaways on a desert island? Maybe we would have a handful of records with us and one book and the works of Shakespeare and the Bible and one luxury.
1: And a volleyball. And this week we
0: read Robinson Crusoe
1: by Daniel Defoe. The book was published in 1719. It was an incredible success and Defoe actually wrote several sequels to the original novel. However, he also stole parts of the plot. He based it on an actual story happening to a castaway sailor named Alexander Selkirk. So not the entire credit should go to Defoe for basically creating the first English novel, as it is often called.
0: The novel, as that very long and convoluted title tells us, tells the story of Robinson Crusoe, a mariner, a merchant, who is cast away on an island for 28 years. But that is just one part of the novel, really. It is the main part. But before that, we hear about how he goes to sea, despite his father begging him not to, how he's enslaved by Ottomans for a while, how he escapes slavery there, how he sets up a plantation in Brazil, and how he then decides to go to the coast of Africa to get slaves for his plantation in Brazil. And it is on that voyage that he is indeed cast away. On the island, he starts building shelter, he starts trying to survive, and he starts contemplating life and he's converted, really. It is a story of a religious conversion as well as of one man's miraculous survival. He finds companionship, of course, in a savage, as he calls him, a man he gives the name, Friday. And eventually, he and Friday and Friday's father and a Spaniard, who turn up out of the blue as well, are saved by pirates. Eventually, he returns to Europe, And we're told that he lives a prosperous life after his miraculous escape from the island.
1: So a lot of things happening in this novel. And you might say it's probably the perfect sujet for the first novel in the English language. So many things happening. Slavery, shipwrecks, fights against cannibals and pirates. So Jonas, do you think that this really deserves the label, the first novel of English literature?
0: Well, I have my problems with that, uh, because as we've already teased in the previous episode, I'm not overly fond of this novel, and we'll come to the reasons why later on. I think people are obsessed with this idea of the first, uh, just as people are obsessed with the idea of the great American novel, what is the first English novel. Now, I don't think anyone claims that this is the first novel overall. I think the the Tale of Genji from Japan or or Don Quixote definitely have that sewn up. But then people say oh it's the first English novel. Well, I think it certainly is a very significant English novel, but not the first one. Surely there were epistolary novels before that. And the one that I would really throw my hat into the ring for is Aphra Love Letters of a Nobleman to His Sister. Partly because I like Aphra Behn, partly because I agree with Virginia Woolf that we should really further the knowledge about Aphra I think she's an underrated writer. And Partly because I don't want Robinson Crusoe to be the first.
1: However, I think it really depends on your definition of novel. I mean, there have been longer prose narratives before Robinson Crusoe in the English language, but the term the novel as opposed to the romance, for example, that really seems to be a child of the 18th century, of this time where several tendencies in English literature and culture came together to form this strange thing, the novel, at least as we see it nowadays.
0: It's this idea of the rise of the novel that coincides with the rise of the middle class. So As Britain moved away from being a society where the aristocracy and the monarch hold all the power to a more capitalist society, where the merchant class are the ones who really are dominant in society, also literature shifts from drama and poetry to the novel, to prose as the new dominant genre. It's where
1: culture, society, politics, religion, economy all come together and are all seen as being reflected in this form of the novel, and certainly also in Robinson Crusoe. In each of these topics, we will probably talk about a bit. But for now, another thing that we mentioned is that it was incredibly successful, and it had an enormous impact on the developing form of the novel in the English language.
0: Definitely. I think even if you haven't read Robinson Crusoe, you do know what it is about, Or maybe you read an abridged version. As soon as the novel came out, people started abridging it. People started especially abridging it for children. In fact, there's a Belgian-French kids movie, an animated movie in cinemas at the moment, at least in Germany, where the story is retold as this funny tale about talking animals who meet this strange human washed up on the island. So... Again, like in 1984 and The Hitchhiker's Guide, we have a case of a novel that grows beyond its own boundaries that really impacts culture as a whole.
1: I mean, it's interesting. This topos of the island is something that has been around from the very beginning of literature, basically. Um, If you think of such works as Thomas More's Utopia, which is more a political tract, but still can also be seen as a kind of early sci-fi literature work, there you also have the idea of an island.
0: If you go back to Plato with uh, Atlantis, that was an island somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean that was supposed to be this amazing place.
1: But you're right, definitely. Robinson Crusoe is the work that made this notion of man alone in the middle of nowhere, trying to make ends meet, trying to fight nature, to conquer nature. An incredibly important topic for whole strand of adventure literature but also other forms of literature
0: there's a whole genre of novels called the robesonade or robinsonade uh, things like lord of the flies things like treasure island but instead of talking about what impact the book had let's go back to the book itself how is it written what is it like to actually open it up and read it
1: well You can see that the novel as a form was maybe still in its baby shoes at that point. The style is definitely telling, not showing. It is all written from Robinson Crusoe's perspective. This kind of conceit where you claim that this is the actual account of his journey. But maybe that also... Is the reason why the language, the style, the way of description is often so very, I don't know, unliterary, at least from our perspective. Robinson Crusoe describes all of the things, the island, the things he does to survive on the island, but also his meditations on life, on religion, on God, in this very, very yeah. How Removed, did... dry yes, way. Exactly.
0: He's a merchant and he always keeps score, basically. Even his religious conversion is very And then I read this passage of the Bible and it moved me in this and that way. He's he's like a robot almost.
1: <laughs> Yeah, a very mathematical way of dealing with things. He is fond of listing things, or listing what he has to build his shelter, listing what activities he does each day, listing how long he has been on the island.
0: Listing, not least, how much money he has. Because even whilst he's on a desert island, the one place where gold is absolutely no use to you. Whenever he finds some gold, oh, you know, he'll, he'll just take it. Because even though he knows, oh, gold is evil and money is such a horrible thing, well, you know, it's just good to hold on to it.
1: And the style is definitely one of those aspects where we, as a contemporary audience, are just very removed from Robinson Crusoe's outlook. And that is also the reason why the novel has the reputation of just being really boring, despite all these adventures and There's exciting so going things. On.
0: There's sea battles, he's enslaved, but during all the time that he's enslaved, he tells us, well, I was in charge of a garden. Okay, and then he tells us, oh, it was horrible to be enslaved. Why? Why? Was he he whipped? Was he forced to do horrible things? Well, maybe. We don't know.
1: If you give Defoe the benefit of doubt, you might say that he tries to emulate the perspective of a merchant, of someone who is actually not an author, a professional author, and tries to describe the ordeals he went through. But I still think that, yeah, this is just something that people were still learning to deal with how to write a novel, how to entice your audience, although that seems to have worked. So who are we to criticize?
0: Well, we are people of the 21st century. And even though it works for people of the 18th century, it doesn't have to work for us anymore. We're already approaching the topic of religion, though, which is a topic that has to be discussed in Robinson Crusoe. It is a conversion story. He starts out not really as a believer, but he comes to realize the grace of God and that his religious father was right all along in warning him to seek adventure in the world. Now, that basically sets my alarm bells ringing right from the start, because I am a person without any religion. Though, to be fair, most of my favorite artworks, my favorite films, my favorite books have religious overtones and themes in them, so I feel strangely drawn towards it. How was your experience of reading Robinson Crusoe when it comes to religion?
1: Well, I found it fascinating to the degree, as we mentioned, that here we have the nexus of several social and cultural things coming together, and obviously religion, or to be more precise, Protestantism, really comes across as an important part. Not only because it is a conversion story, but the way the conversion is linked to Robinson's fate in general. He's converted, but he also manages to build basically an empire, you might say, from scratch. And there are some passages in there where he really talks about feeling like the lord of the manor or the king of the island.
0: He calls the little shelter he builds his castle and the place where he grows
1: some plants his country estate. But it's really fascinating that this is also part of his conversion, that... God seems to favor him in that sense. And we would not be humanists if we didn't just mention the name Max Weber here. Our homeboy. We are practically obliged to talk about his idea of the Protestant work ethic, that the predestination tenet of the Calvinist church, that whether you're chosen or blessed by God is predestined, but you can see it in the way you have success in life and how best to see success, if not in economical terms. Weber's idea was that this idea practically kick-started capitalism in Calvinist countries. And here in Robinson Crusoe, we seem to have really a perfect example for his idea that Robinson Crusoe is not only a budding Protestant, but he is a budding capitalist Mm -hmm.
0: We'll definitely come to Robinson Crusoe as a capitalist and as a member of the middle class as well. But I want to give Defoe credit first. He was a dissenter, which is basically the name for Puritans after they lost the civil war and couldn't be Puritans anymore. But Defoe is tolerant, really, because he knows that a policy of tolerance is the only policy that would allow people like him to have their religion in England at his time. And there's a lot of religion in Robinson Crusoe, but he's never arrogant about it. He's never cocksure about it, you know? He never says, oh, this is definitely how it is. He is convinced by it, but he still leaves a door open for some doubt. When Friday says, yeah, but what about the devil? Why doesn't God just destroy the devil? Robinson cannot answer that. And that's a question that no religious scholar, at least in my view, has been able to answer satisfactorily until this day. So, Defoe doesn't issue this question. He He tackles it. He is not narrow-minded. He has his convictions, which I disagree with, but I like his attitude to them,
1: at least. Well, that also fits this Protestant strand of how to go about your beliefs, that it is a very individual thing, that there is no hierarchical church that can really tell you what is right and what is wrong. You have your personal connection to God. You yourself have to decide what is the will of God, so to say. And there, again, Robinson Crusoe fits right in. There is the room for doubt, maybe, but in the end, it's quite obvious that the only way to prosper in life, is to accept God as your saviour. And, I mean, you mentioned that he is tolerant. Well, Robinson Crusoe is definitely not tolerant, for example, of the childish beliefs of the savages, of the strange gods of Friday and his ilk.
0: But first he thinks, oh, these horrible cannibals, I will have to kill them. But then he says... Hang on, though. Maybe I shouldn't kill them. Maybe I'm not in a position of authority to say these people should die. So, yes, he's not a model of religious tolerance that I would like to see in the 21st century. But still, for the 18th century, he's not bad. He's not bad.
1: Well, he's not as bad, but I think the connection between his position in life and his religious beliefs is still striking and not always in a good sense, because there may not be a hierarchical church to follow, but there is definitely a hierarchy. And there is even a quote in the novel where Robinson Crusoe's father tells him what the best position to have in life is. He told me it
0: was for men of desperate fortunes on one hand or of aspiring superior fortunes on the other, who went abroad upon adventures to rise by enterprise and make themselves famous in undertakings of a nature out of the common road that these things were either too far above me or too far below me, that mine was the middle state, or what might be called the upper station of low life, which he had found by long experience was the best state in the world. This quote right at the beginning of the novel really sets out the programme, the middle state. Don't be too rich, too high in society, don't be too poor, too low in society, be somewhere in the middle. What do you think of that? Do you think that in life you should aspire to basically avoid conflict, to basically find your way by the path of least resistance and just stay on the safe side?
1: Sounds like a great idea, but I think that the novel kind of contradicts itself there because his father warns Robinson of going out and having adventures. You might think that he's right because his son has misadventures the entire time and still goes back out. But in the end, I mean, it kind of pays off, doesn't it? Robinson Crusoe wouldn't have become a rich man, basically, if he hadn't gone out. He prospers by going out and having adventures, going to Brazil, uh, going to Africa and so on. There might be some misfortunes, I mean, rather large misfortunes, but still, in the end, he is not just content sitting there with his position in the middle state he goes out and accepting god that is the safety he needs and all the rest makes him a i wouldn't say middle class citizen he is a, yeah a capitalist
0: but but he does accept this middle class life towards the end and he realizes on his adventures oh my god i wish i wasn't on this adventure right now the novel definitely makes the case that you should stay within the middle
1: state I'm not sure, actually. I think it is kind of hypocritical. Obviously, there is a lot of suffering. 28 years on a desert island, basically. That is not something that is taken lightly. But it helps Robinson. It helps him to find God. It helps him to become a better individual. It makes him rich. It makes him a ruler, so to say. He collects men, Friday, uh, only the first one around him. So this is not as middle class as you might think. Or it is as middle class as you might think, but it is not the middle class staying at home, being content with what they have. It is the middle class at the beginning of capitalism and also at the beginning of a global economy.
0: But, but but you know, he frames his existence on the island in these middle-class terms. He emphasizes hard work. Again, we come back to Weber's Protestant work ethic there. But a lot of the novel is actually about how he builds things, about how he makes things, how he manages to construct shelter. There's a whole long passage about how he manages to make a clay pot. It, it really is... He's a middle-class hero, you know, by hard work and industry. He goes out there and he achieves greatness. But but he achieves greatness through all these middle-class values. And he transposes them onto this adventurous situation
1: on the island. He transposes it. But exactly, he is not sitting at home and working hard. He has to go out into the wide world. He has to go to the colonies, basically. Only there can his middle-class values really make him a special person. Only there can he become that great paragon of religion, of capitalism, of middle class values. It wouldn't have happened if he had followed his father's advice. Yes, the middle class is very dominant in this. But it is not about humility or staying close to your roots. It is about going out, about challenges and adventure and, let's face it, exploiting others who are not as fortunate as you are in that middle state. That
0: actually makes the book sound a lot more likable to me. It keeps going on about the middle state being the best and that you should not rise above what you are supposed to have. To, to put it maybe in more familiar terms, that's a very Hufflepuff way of seeing the world. That's not a way of living that's going to take humanity to the moon
1: or to Mars or anywhere else. But then again, this if this is not Hufflepuff, it's more Slytherin, isn't it? Getting what you want... by By
0: exploiting others yeah Yeah, definitely definitely
1: and that makes me despise at least the viewpoint of robinson crusoe all the more or defoe all the more that is (laughs) depending on how (laughs) that is a good point i again give defoe the benefit of doubt that maybe there is a certain kind of distance between him and robinson crusoe's perspective That maybe defoe is kind of satirizing even this very, very Protestant viewpoint. But I don't know.
0: I think definitely, well, definitely Defoe was very, very Protestant. That's for sure. But maybe we can find out a bit more about that in the way that he deals with the savages, with the cannibals as he refers to them. The topic of colonialism hangs in the air. As Robinson says, I made him know his name should be Friday, which was the day I saved his life. I likewise told him to say master. So, right from the beginning, Robinson is master, and Friday is his man. Friday, you know? The novel, of course, is horribly colonialist, as you said. Uh, he only manages to achieve greatness by going to the
1: colonies, basically, setting up his own little colony and being the lord of it. The governor, even? Even in the beginning. I mean, there is the whole slavery tale. and there. How
0: could somebody who was enslaved consider going to Africa to get more slaves? It's, it's, it's mind-boggling, really. And it really speaks that he must think those people who he's planning to enslave, less human, subhuman even, that he would
1: impose this horrible state of servitude that he fled from on them. And it's not quite clear whether he changes his position, whether his conversion to Christianity really does much to kind of see these savages more as fellow human beings. Well, it's interesting, especially in his relationship with Friday, really,
0: because, well, he's his man, Friday, well... That certainly has applications that he's his servant. But okay, so servant, master. That's a pairing that we know from uh, Renaissance and Restoration comedy that can be fairly equal. But how does he really see Friday, you know? He doesn't really respect Friday as a person. He sees him as a project, as something to be worked on. And Friday sort of disappears towards the end of the novel. We don't really know what happens to him. But there are some people who read the novel in a way that he actually sells Friday. And that's not just some random person he picked up somewhere on the coast of Africa, which is horrible enough, but that's a person who he lived with for years. Somebody he cherished, somebody who he considered a friend. So that is fairly... Bleak, And that's towards the end of the novel. So I don't think it really does change his mind. I think his religious conversion only convinces him further and strengthens his belief of his entitlement, really.
1: His superiority, because he manages to do all these things and others don't. And that, at least, is quite clear, that Robinson Crusoe, however mathematical his mind might be or however satirical Defoe's portrayal might be, that Robinson does prosper. And he prospers because he exploits others.
0: Though he always makes sure to distance himself from the Spanish and the Portuguese. You know, those Catholics who also have colonies
1: in South America. Really horrible. They treat the natives in a horrible way. And the English would never do that. No, 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 no. The English, they really care for their subjects. Yes. They educate them.
0: And they raise them up to become almost
1: as good as the whites. You oh, know? the white man's birth. No, no, that's no. a few dozen years later. Though it really fits in very well here.
0: It's interesting that he dares to judge the Portuguese and the Spanish. So, oh, don't get me wrong. Some of my best friends are Portuguese. Actually, the the captain who saves him when he escapes slavery is Portuguese. And he says, oh, he's a lovely guy. But the Portuguese in general... They are horrible. Oh, and I wouldn't want to go back to Brazil because, you know, I would, I would have to be Catholic. And being Catholic is not a very good thing to be.
1: But, of course, I make a lot of money with the plantation that I have in Brazil. and
0: But I wouldn't like to be Catholic. It, it, there, again, we have this hypocritical side of Robinson Crusoe and of the novel. Not just Robinson Crusoe, the person, but the novel itself as well. So, definitely a novel that we both have our problems with. But... What is our verdict? Should you actually read Robinson Crusoe or no? I have
1: to say, I don't know. This is the first time, I think at least, that I really don't have an answer. Because on the one hand, it is obviously really, really important. It might not be the first English novel, but it is one that is at a pivotal moment. You really cannot ignore Robinson Crusoe. On the other hand, from our perspective, both the style and the content are really, really difficult. Not just because it's boring or written in a strange way, but also because the ideas are so strange to us. And I think it is a fascinating view in that time. And there may be even some aspects that you could connect to contemporary ideas. I mean... Reading Robinson Crusoe in a postcolonial fashion. It's a treasure trove of ideas and of concepts. But at the same time, you don't have to. You really don't have to.
0: I also don't really know, but I think if you are a literary scholar, or if you're a historian of the 17th and 18th century, you're going to get a lot out of this. If you're just an interested amateur, again, it's like 1984, you don't really have to, because you basically already know the important bits that you have to know. So, two not-really's on Robinson Crusoe. Christian, what should people read instead if they don't want to read Robinson Crusoe?
1: Well, one idea... One book that I immediately thought of when I thought about Robinson Crusoe is one where this urge for adventure, for going out and facing nature alone, is seen in a much more negative way. Unfortunately, that would be a book that you already recommended in our H.P. Lovecraft episode, namely The Strange Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym by Edgar Allan Poe. Now I had to think of that because I actually went to an opera version of Pym yesterday and I was struck by how much the same topics are dealt with, although in a much more fantastical way and obviously it's more about the horrors of going out. But since you recommended that already, my recommendation is something that, just like you with Robinson Crusoe, I encountered as a child in a kind of abridged version and I think both Robinson Crusoe and this one I first encountered as puppet versions, animated versions, namely Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. This is... Anu- similarly horribly colonialist, of course. Indeed. It's similarly colonialist, still an amazing adventure story and one that is much easier to approach because it is much more modern. It is already quite close to us and how we see the world with its racist and colonialist thoughts, but still much more fast-paced, much more thrilling, and still, I think, an an amazing story to follow. So Jules Verne, Around the World in 80 Days.
0: Uh, The the only thing that I took away from your recommendations, basically, is that you went to not only the opera, but an opera based on Edgar Allan Poe yesterday, which just confirms all of my ideas about your pretentiousness, really. (laughs) I have three recommendations, though only one of them is really serious. First, I just have to mention William Shakespeare's The Tempest, because I'm currently directing a production of it. And of course, the themes explored in Robinson Crusoe are already there in The Tempest. So once again, we can confirm, yeah, Shakespeare is actually a really great writer, and he actually prefigured a lot of the themes that would come in later. My other recommendation is actually a film version of Robinson Crusoe, from 1997, uh, it stars Pierce Brosnan as Robinson Crusoe, and it is absolutely fucking horrific. I was just about to say, why are you recommending this? Because it's hilarious! Because for some inexplicable reason, they make him Scottish instead of from York, and Pierce Brosnan really cannot do a Scottish accent. It features a scene of Pierce Brosnan playing the bagpipes to corgi, and also he says the word... Friend! A dozen times. Watch it, have a bottle of vodka while you watch it, and it will be immensely enjoyable. The only really interesting thing that it does is that it tries to reconfigure the relationship between Robinson and Friday in an interesting way, and it really challenges the colonialism of the narrative. And that's just because the actor who played Friday was William Takaku, who was a Papua New Guinean filmmaker who really struggled with the character of Friday and the story of Robinson Crusoe throughout his career. So he does some interesting things there, but the film is still absolutely atrocious. There is a very good film that I would recommend as well, though, and that is Cast Away with Tom Hanks. Now, it is not really consciously referring to to Robinson Crusoe, but a lot of the themes are there. He's a slave driver, as in he's a horrible boss at the beginning. He's then shipwrecked on this island... And he is properly shipwrecked, you know? It's not like, ah, I can just row over to the next island, but he's completely isolated. And he only managed to escape, well, again, really by the grace of God, because he finds something to build a sail out of. And what does he paint on the sail? Angel's wings. It is an adaptation that really picks up the themes much more than the plot of the novel. Wilson? Wilson? It is kind of problematic, of course, that they do replace the actual person with an, inan- with an inanimate object. And considering the contexts that people were seen in... Well, yeah. Well, yeah, that's maybe a bit off. But still, it is a great film, and it just shows the potential of this story. And I think Robinson Crusoe is a great story, don't get me wrong, but I think it is a story that's ripe for the retelling. If, if you're an executive at HBO or Netflix, put some millions behind this project and do a miniseries on Robinson Crusoe where you actually adapt all the exciting stuff... And make it interesting and show us the sea battles and show us the hardships that he suffers in slavery and make something out of this. This is, while I would not recommend you read it, definitely an intriguing book. So that was our opinion on Robinson Crusoe. If you disagree with it, you can get in touch with us. You can write an email to outsideofadogcast at
1: gmail.com.
0: And one person who has done that is Bob K., who writes an email with the subject line, Oh, please keep it English language lit. Not French not not anything else. So Christian, I and Bob K
1: ask you what are we going to read for our next episode? Well Bob K will be happy because next time we'll be English language we'll be about a man alone but not on a desert island rather alone in the mean streets alone with a world that's against him alone with the darkness and the light. We're going to read The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler.
0: Oh Chandler, I know him, he was not Friends, right?
1: Oh boy, you're in for a surprise.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. For more information visit outsideofadogcast.com
1: Why HG Wells? I, I meant D.H. Lawrence, no, I meant You meant uh, ballad. No, J.G. J. Ballard. No. You meant J.G. Ballard.
0: I did not mean J.G. Ballard. You
1: meant J.G. Ballard. No. He wrote Crash.
0: Yeah, but I didn't mean... He- no, I meant... No, what's his name?
1: J.G. Ballard.
0: The guy who wrote Mountains of Madness. J.G. Ballard. <laughs> no, I happen to know that... No, also not H.L. Mannequin. The guy who wrote Mountains of Madness. Al- oh, yeah. Cthudo. Uh J. G.
1: Ballard. J.G. Ballard.
0: No, what the fuck is his name? Um, Not J.D. Salinger.
1: J.K. Simmons.
0: Not J.K. Rowling. (laughs) Um, Come on, what's his name? J.J. Abrams. No. (laughs) Fuck you, no. It's... J.G. Ballard.